Hello and welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details podcast. I am your host, Sarah, and I've got my co-host, Darcy, with me of the most excellent nature from one of those beautiful southern states. We will not tell you exactly which one that is because we want to keep some level of privacy for her on that. But what's the temperature like there right now? Fucking hot as a motherfucker. Like I walked my dog at like 8 a.m. and it was 91 degrees. Holy shitballs. Yeah, it's ridiculous. I hate it. I love the heat, though, and I'm nope. kind of bummed out that it is a little chillier here. And then we we start out, we've got these kind of gloomy mornings, and it's real super cold. And Yeah, you're just coming out of June gloom. You out of bed. Yeah, we're still in it. Still hardcore and heavily into it. We are into July now. But see, here we don't get, we don't get just heat here. We get humidity. I like it. And it's like, why? Oh, no. No. It's wrong. It's that's wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Well, (laughs) having lived in both, I would prefer absolutely dry heat. Well, we don't really have dry heat right here. I mean, it has not been a hot summer. It has not been a hot year so far. I'm hoping this summer thing is going to kick, get up off its ass and start happening soon. There's like two weeks in August or September where it gets pretty hot there. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, I live in a warmer area of San Diego, and it still right. doesn't feel like it's been warm the entire time. And yeah, I want some serious and significant heat to make me sweat a little bit. Tell you what, I will trade you. Okay, we'll trade. Boom, um, done. <laughs> I'll take your small rental fee, and you can take my big mortgage, and <laughs> we'll trade. Sounds I tell like you what, I don't have me. the money, so I just don't pay it. And right? that's how that goes. Um, Your credit. <laughs> exactly. Today's podcast is about killer British duos. I'm kind of looking forward to this one because these fuckers are pretty sick. Yeah. I mean, I don't think they're Ed Kemper sick, but there's still there's some twisted stuff going on here that is, is pretty mangled. Darcy is I think actually... anytime you have like a couple that works together, there's some there's a weird dynamic that is just so interesting. I guess because it's so rare. And for those two psychotic, crazy people to have come from wherever they came from to find one another and do shit like this together is always interesting to me. Right. It's like and it's and... usually that one wouldn't do it on their own. Like one would probably do something violent on their own. But then they find another person who wouldn't do something violent on their own, but needs to follow the other person, you know? Right. And I find it even more interesting when it's a little bit, cases that are a little bit older, like from Mm -hmm. the 70s or before, or the 80s or before, because they didn't have social media like they have now. They didn't have these crazy dating websites for fetish people and these chat rooms for dark web shit and all kinds of other crazy stuff where people are like, you know, obviously finding it a little bit easier to meet like-minded individuals who want to do shit like this. Um, but these people didn't right. have any of that. They had maybe personal Yeah, you ads. had to meet the old-fashioned way. So to have that kind of luck to find some creepy, dark, scary, psychotic person to perpetuate this shit with is, is crazy. Um, Darcy's going right. to start us out with her case today. What do you have for us? So we're going to talk about the Moore's murders. And again, this is an old old school case, so it's going to be right for Allie. So this is Ian Brady and Myra Henley. And a little bit of background on each of them. Ian Brady was born in Glasgow, 
Glasgow. I don't know how you pronounce it. I'm from Alabama. So he was born in Scotland as Ian Duncan Stewart on January 2nd, 1938. His mother, Peggy, was unmarried and she worked as a tea room server. And his father was never really identified. It's believed that he may have been a, like a local journalist that died right before Ian was born. But when Ian was just a few months old, Peggy, because she couldn't care for him, she was forced to give him over to be raised by Mary and John Sloan. And it has been claimed that Brady tortured animals when he was young, but this is something he always denied. And again, that falls into that McDonald triad of future head injury, whatever peeing the bed, and animal torture. Right. <laughs> the triad yeah, the, of the McDonald homicidal triad, yeah. yeah. So I had, to, I had to remember, I forgot what it was called. So when he was a teenager, he appeared before a juvenile court twice for breaking into houses. I think the Wikipedia page called it housebreaking, but like that's what you do to your pets here in America. So I'm going to call it just breaking into houses. <laughs> and he left school at 15 and started working as a tea boy. I don't know what that is at a shipyard. And later he worked as a butcher's messenger boy. Oh, I think those are people that go and fetch the tea like you would like with coffee because they would drink tea in much the same way that we do little coffee breaks here. Like a server? Yeah. Like a, so he'd like have to go fetch the oh. tea for the guys when they would have their breaks or what, or their um, snacks or food or whatever. Oh, that's just weird that they call it a tea boy. Right. Because tea back then, tea then is like a, it's like a snack. Their tea time. It's like a snack Yeah, time that's or... true. And this is also like in the 50s. Yes. So anyway, he had a girlfriend at the time, but she broke up with him after he threatened her with a knife because she went to a dance with another boy. And as a result of this, he was put on probation just prior to his 17th birthday on the condition that he returned to live with his mom, Peggy. And at this point, Peggy had married and moved to Manchester, and she married a fruit merchant named Patrick Brady. And Ian took his stepfather's last name. So that's when he becomes Ian Brady. So within a year of moving to Manchester, he gets arrested for stealing lead seals from the market. I don't know what those are either. And he was sent to Strangeways Prison for three months. But because he was still under 18, he actually get, then got sentenced to two years in juvenile detention at Hatfield. And when he was at Hatfield. He was actually found drunk on alcohol. He had brewed himself. That's always fun. And he was moved to a tougher unit. And he ultimately was released in 1957. So he's already had a tough life. And uh, in 1959, he started work as a clerk at a wholesale chemical distribution company. And he started to read books about like teaching himself German. And he read Mein Kampf. And he started reading books on Nazi atrocities. So that's cool. So he was into some freaking dark shit. Right. So a little bit about Myra Henley. She was born on July 23rd, 1942, and she was raised in a working class area of Manchester. Her parents beat her pretty regularly, and her father was an alcoholic. And their house was said to be so small that her parents had to sleep in the only available bedroom, and she had to sleep in a single bed next to her parents' double. Wow, that sounds terrific. Yeah, and this only got worse when her sister Maureen was born in 1946. Not an ideal situation at home. Exactly. And so when Myra was five, she was sent to live with her grandmother who lived nearby. And her father had served in World War II. I believe he was part of like a parachute unit. And he was known as a hard man who expected his daughter to be equally tough. 
and he would teach her to fight and insist that she stick up for herself. And when Myra was eight, a boy scratched both of her cheeks and drew blood. And when Myra ran home crying, her father told her to go out and punch the boy and threaten to whip her if she didn't. Good Lord. So she ran out and found the boy and punched him and later wrote, at eight years old, I'd scored my first victory. And in 1957, she was invited by her close friend, 13-year-old Michael Higgins, to go swimming in a local reservoir. But Henley didn't feel like swimming, so she didn't go. And she later found out that Michael had drowned. So this affected her greatly, and she blamed herself for his death because she was a very strong swimmer. And I guess she thought that even at such a young age, she could have saved him. And after his funeral, she started attending the Catholic Church. And in January of 1961, Myra got a job at the same chemical distribution company where Ian Brady worked. And even though she knew of Ian's criminal record, she became infatuated with them. Those girls like the bad boys. Exactly. And she wrote about him all the time in this diary that she kept, but she began to become disillusioned with him, I guess because he never asked her out. And finally, on December 22nd of that year, he did ask her out on a date to the movies and they started dating and their dates kind of followed the same pattern where they would go see an X-rated movie at the theater and then they'd go back to Myra's house to drink wine. And Ian eventually moved in with her. Wait, back to Myra's house her, with like the one bedroom and like everyone's she No, on top she, of each she other? moved out. Okay. <laughs> she moved out. I think this is when she lived with her grandma. Okay. Uh, Ian gave her some of his reading material and they spent their lunch breaks at work reading aloud to each other about Nazi war crimes. Oh my god. And, I just want to throw up. Yeah, and Myra began to emulate an ideal Aryan look. She bleached her hair blonde and she started wearing red lipstick and she also started wearing more, I guess like what at the time would be considered risque clothing. She started wearing like knee-high boots and short skirts and leather jackets. Okay. Because that's Aryan. That's definitely She looked Aryan. like she was out of grease. <laughs> right. Yeah. In 1963, Ian Brady began talking about committing the perfect murder. And what's interesting, because apparently he was influenced by a movie that had just been released about Leopold and Loeb. And that's a case we should cover. Yeah, for sure. So if you don't know just a little bit about that, they were two teenagers who thought they could get away with a perfect murder because they were so smart. Um, oh obviously my they God. Didn't. Again with the, I'm too smart. I'm <laughs> definitely going to get away with this because I'm smarter than everybody else who tried this shit right. before me. Stupid. And if I'm not mistaken, I believe they were both wealthy or one of them was very wealthy, something like that. And so that also played an influence. But anyway, so July of 1963, Brady told Henley to drive her van around and he was going to follow on his motorcycle, and when he spotted a victim he liked, he would flash his, flash his headlights. And Henley was then supposed to stop and offer this person a ride. So they're driving down, I, I guess it's Manchester, but they're driving down Gorton Lane, and Brady saw a young girl, and he signaled to Henley to stop, but she kept driving. So when Brady finally pulled up to, beside her, she said she didn't stop because she recognized the young girl as a neighbor of her mother's. And didn't obviously want to draw attention to the, being somebody that they knew. So later that same day, about 8 p.m., they're driving on Froxmer Street, and Brady spots 16-year-old Pauline Reed, who was walking to a dance. Henley recognized Pauline, too, but figured there would be less outcry over the disappearance of a teenager than there would be over a young child. So she stops and offers Pauline a ride. And when 
Pauline got into the van, Henley asked her to help search for an expensive glove that she'd lost at the Saddleworth Moor. And I guess a moor is just kind of like a bog or like a swampy area. It's not like a, it's not an area, like it's not like a park. It's not a nice area. It's not a place you go hang out. It's my understanding that um, it's just a, like a large sort of wild area with like a shit ton of right. bushes and peat and moss. and. Yeah, it's like really just densely... I don't, not populated because it's trees and they're not like people, but you know what I'm saying. So Brady then pulls up on his motorcycle at the moor and Henley told Pauline that he's also going to be helping search for the glove. Henley would later claim that she waited in the van while Brady took Pauline into the moor and he returned after about 30 minutes and took Henley to the spot where Pauline was lying. Her throat had been cut twice with a large knife, including a four-inch incision across her larynx, which is a voice box, um, and he had pushed the collar of Pauline's coat into this incision in her voice oh, box. God. Yeah. And Brady told Henley to stay with Pauline while he went to grab a shovel so they could bury the body, and Henley noticed at this point that Pauline's coat was undone and her clothes were in disarray, and she assumed that Brady had raped her. And Brady later claimed that Henley was present for the attack and even assisted in the sexual assault. That's a controversial um, part of this case as well. Um, because there's right. been so much back and forth with respect to whether Myra yeah. participated or not. He insists up right. and down that she participated during all of it. And then she says, oh, I didn't participate in any. And then at some point she says, well, I did in some. And it's... um. Very interesting. I think it has gone back and forth so many times, and it's the history is so long ago that I think your memory starts to ne not necessarily be the most trustworthy. Uh, what do you think? Right. Do you think she actually participated in all of them? Uh, yeah, I do. I think she participated in all of them because, because she in all of these, she has uh, an interesting pattern of she's conveniently always in the car or she's off somewhere else and then she returns about 30 minutes later and the kid is dead so yeah i think she participated i think she just didn't want to admit it because they were young kids and many of them are sexually assaulted right and i think number one she didn't want to go to jail for a, a long period of time and number two she didn't want the public opinion to crucify her for doing something so disgusting right so november 23rd 1963 they're driving around and they offer 12 year old John Kilbride a ride home and they tell him that his parents are going to worry because he's out so late and they also promise to give him a bottle of sherry. So when he got in the so car. That's so sort of an impetus for a 12 year old boy, a bottle of sherry. Like, that sounds I guess. I mean, <laughs> yeah, it sounds disgusting to us, but I think sherry is like a common drink there, right? Or maybe it was or something. I don't know. Well, I mean, it's probably more popular back then. Isn't it supposed to be, like, really sweet? Do 12-year-old boys like to get hammered on sherry? Like, I, I don't know. I'm sure a 12-year-old boy wants to get hammered on anything he can. You know? Like, if there were Smirnoff back then, he's probably like, fucking yeah, Smirnoff. It's weird, because I, um, I never wanted to get drunk at that age. I didn't want to get drunk until I was, like, 20. I'd say I'm the same way, but I don't know Keith's life. <laughs> I'm sure it was hard in 1960s England. Right, so. right. So, and also the drinking age is 18 there. So maybe they started earlier too. But anyway, so they, oh wait, this was John, not Keith. Might be, scratch that. So 
They get inside the car, and when he gets inside the car, Brady says, oh, wait, we have to take a detour. We got to go home to get the sherry. But before we go home, hey, we need to go to this moor because Myra lost her glove. Classic Myra, losing her glove. Again with a glove. (laughs) (laughs) So they get to the moor, and again, Henley manages to wait in the car while Brady takes Kilbride out in the moor, and he sexually assaulted him and slit his throat with a six-inch serrated blade before strangling him with either a string or a shoelace. What I find a little bit interesting about this, if I could interject for just one moment, is that he seemed to have an equal number of boys and girls that he kidnapped and sexually assaulted. Is it, am I mistaken on that? No, that's right. Yeah. So at no point was there any indication or, or sort of this there, at no point was there an indication or sort of claim that this man was a homosexual. No. Just, just a and, yeah, and it isn't uncommon with pedophiles that are attracted to prepubescent children that they don't differentiate between male and fe- or boy and girl. Very interesting. Um, because very there's interesting. very similar characteristics in prepubescent boys and girls. But the evening of June 16th of 1964, Henley asked 12-year-old Keith Bennett to help load some boxes into her mini pickup truck. Don't do it, Keith. Don't do it. I know. Don't do it. Just walk away. So he was walking to his grandmother's house and Henley offered to drive him Innocently home. minding his own business and then, bam, yep. accosted by this couple. Yep. So he gets in the car and Brady is in the back of the car. And again, they head to the Saddleworth Moor. And once again... Henley managed to wait in the car while Brady takes Keith to look for a lost glove. And starting to sense a pattern here. Right. And Brady <laughs> returns a back he returns alone after 30 minutes. And Brady told Henley that he sexually assaulted Keith and strangled him with a piece of string. With a string. Yeah. With a piece of string. String. And the the other one, John, was either a string or a shoelace. But that one, it he also so had his throat slit. unbelievable to think that someone could be killed with a shoelace or a string. I mean, I know it's possible because it has been done so many times, but doesn't it seem a little wacky? Yeah, it seems very difficult. Even though they're, these are 12-year-old boys, I mean, it's, it's, they're still strong. You would think they would still be sh- strong, and it would take a long time. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. But then so, I guess if you have Myra helping you hold him down, then it probably would be exactly. a lot easier. But Myra was in the car, Sarah. No, she was How not. How was she to know? Yeah, she she absolutely was. <laughs> she was So good. on December 26, 1964, Brady and Henley went to a fairground and they find 10-year-old Leslie and Downey walking alone. And they approach her and deliberately drop some shopping bags they were carrying. And they ask her to help carry the bags to their car and then help them carry them into their home. A 10-year-old girl. And this is something that is one of the best pieces of advice. And I may have said it here before. It's one mm-hmm. of the best pieces of advice I heard that Karen Kilgariff said on My Favorite Murder is no adult should ever ask a child for help. Right. There's no circumstance where an adult will ask a child for help. So what the fuck is a full-grown healthy, uninjured adult going to need a 10-year-old's child's help to pick up a fucking Exactly. Bag. They don't need your help finding their dog. They don't need their your help finding their kid. They should ask an adult. 
And if it's 2019, they should fucking call somebody because everybody has a goddamn phone in their pocket now. Unless you're Ted Bundy and you put a cast on. <laughs> like you're seriously injured um still sorry about your broken arm right later but nonetheless i don't think there are a whole lot of 10 year olds listening to the show so um thanks but if you have kids this is something you should tell your kids tell your 10 year old child yes there's no reason an adult will ever ask a child for help there's no reason on the up and up okay so they get to their home and they take off leslie's clothes they gag her and force her to pose for pictures which is just one of the most awful things. She's 10 years old. It's, it's just horrifying. And then they rape her and they kill her. And Henley, again, managed to not be there for the assault and murder. She claims that she went to just run a bath for Leslie. And then she came back and, oh no, Brady's killed her. Right. So she just, like, hovered outside and then, until she knew when the right time was and then came back. Uh-huh. It's weird. Yeah. And Brady, of course, claims that Henley is the one that actually killed Downey. And the next morning, they drove back to the Saddleworth Moor, and they buried her naked with her clothes at her feet. Wow. And on November, on October 6, 1965, this is the last murder and the one that they will that gets them caught. And I don't even understand the circumstances of why they did this, but... Henley drove Brady to Manchester Central Station, and she waited in the car while he selected a new victim. And Brady returned with 17-year-old Edward Evans and introduced Henley as a sister. And this is interesting because this is a very different victim than the other ones. This is considerably older. This is almost an adult. He's 17 years old. And I don't... There's no indication of why he was chosen or anything like that, but... So they drive back to their home and they drink some wine. And then Brady sent Henley to get her brother-in-law, David Smith. David was married to Henley's younger sister, Maureen. And I don't know why they did this. It doesn't make any sense. But Henley tells uh, David to wait outside for her signal, which is going to be a flashing light. And when he saw the signal, he knocked on the door. Brady answered the door and asked if Smith had come for the miniature wine bottles. Like, it was almost said as if it was, like, a code. Mm -hmm. But David doesn't seem to know what this is about. And so he says, you know, hey, have you come for the miniature wine bottles? And then he left him in the kitchen saying he was going to go get the wine. And then Smith later told police he waited a minute or two, and then he heard a really, really high-pitched scream. And then he hears Myra shout, Dave, help him. And so David runs into the living room and he saw Edward Evans lying with his head and shoulders on the couch and his legs on the floor and he was facing upward. And Ian was standing over him with a hatchet in his hand. And Ian then raised the hatchet above his head and hit Edward on the head, killing him. And so David saw all of this and Evans' body was too heavy for Smith to carry. I don't know why Smith was carrying the body. I don't know why he was there. But... The body was too heavy for Smith to carry on his own, so they wrapped him in a plastic sheeting and they put him in the spare bedroom. This is so crazy. Because, number one... It's very weird. You have to think, in my mind, how did they think they could keep getting away with this? Were they just sort of emboldened when they didn't get caught on the first one and they were like, oh, hey, we got away with this. Let's do it again. I think that's what happens, is that they don't get caught if there's not a lot of news about the first one. They think that nobody's paying attention to them. I think that's what happens. And then they start to feel invincible, like, and powerful, Uh and 
don't know. But then to get the other family yeah. members involved just seems so bizarre to me. Where they at that point just like fuck right. it. We haven't gotten caught yet. Fuck it. Or do they want to get caught? That's the other thing. Do you get to a point where you're kind of you're done with it? And Myra was like, "Hey, I'm done with this, and we need to get caught so that he can stop doing this." Yeah, I don't know. And David Smith, he had a history of violence. And it's really interesting because it says the Henley family didn't approve of Maureen's marriage to David Smith. He had several criminal convictions, including actual bodily harm and breaking into houses. And the first of his actual bodily harm charges was with wounding with intent. And that occurred when he was 11 years old. So he's not the most stand-up guy either. So maybe just Brady thought this dude was... Maybe Brady just thought he was super shady, and he's like, hey, this guy's definitely going to be in Yeah, like, maybe this is somebody that's going to want to help out with us, and, and that's another person we can bring into this weird, fucked-up fold. So, the next day, Smith agrees to meet Brady uh, to dispose of Evan's body, but when he gets home and he tells Maureen what happened, she insisted he call the police, of course. And she's so they call the police. Person. Exactly. She's so they call the police Ill. from a nearby phone booth, and they brought a screwdriver and a knife to the phone booth in case Brady came out to confront them because they lived, you know, nearby. So gonna shank him with a screwdriver, like I, don't know. I guess, just for defense, if he sees them making a phone call and he wants to come attack them, they have a knife and a screwdriver. Okay. So, the morning of October seventh, shortly after David Smith called the police, Superintendent Ball Talbot arrived at the back door of. Henley and Brady's home and he actually was dressed in like coveralls as if he were a baker so he but he identifies himself as a police officer so I don't really know what the purpose of being undercover was so Henley opens the door and he's like hey I'm a police officer I need to speak to Ian Brady Henley lets him into the living room and Brady is writing his employer about the ankle injury that he suffered during his attack on Edward Evans So, uh, Superintendent Talbot explains that he's investigating an act of violence involving guns that was reported to have taken place the previous evening. And Henley's like, no, there's not any violence, but have a look around the house. And police ask for a key to a locked upstairs room. And Henley says it's at work. And police are like, okay, well, we'll take you to work to get this key. And Brady's like, okay, well, they're on to us. Go ahead and hand the key over. Like... Seems like he gives up pretty quickly. They go back to the living room and they arrest Brady on suspicion of murder. And as he was getting dressed after when they were arresting him, he said, Eddie and I had a row and the situation got out of hand. And so Henley wasn't originally arrested, but she demanded to go with Brady to the police station. But she refused to make any statement about Evans' death beyond claiming it had been an accident. And she was allowed to go home on the condition that she returned the next day. She went to work and at Brady's like workstation, she found an envelope belonging to him that she burned in an ashtray. She says she didn't open it, but she believed it contained plans for some bank robberies that they had been talking about committing. Hmm. And on October 11th, she was charged as an accessory to Evans's murder and was remanded at Risley prison so initially brady told police that he and evans had fought but he insisted that david smith had actually murdered evans and that henley had only done what she'd been told 
and Smith said that Brady had asked them to return anything incriminating, such as dodgy books, which Brady then packed into suitcases. He had no idea what else the suitcases contained or where they might be. This is Smith saying that he had no idea what where the suitcases contained or where they might be, but Brady had said something about having a thing about railway stations. So they searched the left luggage offices at the Manchester Central Station, and they find suitcases that include nine pornographic photographs of a young girl naked with a scarf tied across her neck and a 16-minute audio tape of a girl screaming and pleading for help. Audio tape? What the fuck? Yeah, I mean, this gets into, like, toy box killer territory, which is another episode that we are covering, so check that out. This um, <laughs> After Leslie Ann Downey was recovered, her body was recovered, her mom identified the tape as being of her voice. So police searched the home of Myra Henley and Ian Brady and found an old exercise book with the name John Kilbride, which made them suspect that Brady and, and Henley had been involved in the disappearances of the other children. There's also a large collection of photographs, many taken on the moor, um, and we'll post some of these. 150 officers searched the moor for locations matching the photographs, but it was actually a close neighbor, an 11-year-old, who had been taken to the moor by Brady and Henley, who told investigators and showed investigators their favorite sites along this road that the moor, I guess, ran along. On October 16th, police found an arm bone protruding from the moor, which they presumed at first was Kilbride's, but the body was actually later identified as Downey's, and Downey's mother recognized the clothes, because remember, they, they buried her nude, but they put her clothes at her feet. In another area of the moor, they found the body of John Kilbride, which they identified by his clothing. That same day, Brady and Henley were charged with Downey's murder. They they suspected Henley and Brady of other murders of children and teenagers who had gone missing from the area in the previous few years, but it was now becoming winter, so they couldn't search the moor anymore. And when they presented Brady with a the tape recording, he admitted to taking the photographs of Downey, but insisted that she had been brought to the house by two men who had subsequently taken her away again alive, which, why even bother making that up? In December, they were charged with the murders of Kilbride in addition to Downey and Evans, and Henley was actually charged as an accessory to the murder of Kilbride, and she was charged with the murders of Downey and Evans. So the trial lasted two weeks and the courtroom was fitted with security screens because there was so much public interest in this and they were each charged with three murders because they then they, they eventually found enough evidence that they could implicate Myra in Kelbride's death as well. David Smith was the chief prosecution witness but during trial it was revealed that he had made an agreement with the newspaper guaranteeing him a thousand pounds which is about twenty thousand pounds in 2019 for the syndication rights to his story if brady and henley were convicted so obviously mm -hmm. this compromised his trial or his uh witness testimony and brady and henley pleaded not guilty to the charges 
and they both actually testified. So Brady admitted hitting Evans with an axe, but he didn't admit killing him. And he argued that the pathologist had stated that Evans's death was accelerated by strangulation. And Henley denied any knowledge that the photographs of Saddleworth Moore found by police had been taken near the graves of their victims. It was just the place they liked to go. On the 16-minute tape recording of, of Leslie and Downey, the voices of Brady and Henley could both be heard. And Henley admitted in court that her attitude toward Downey was brusque and cruel but claimed that it was only because she was afraid that someone might hear Downey screaming. And she oh, claimed God. that when Downey was being undressed, she herself was downstairs, and when the pornographic photos were taken, she was looking out the window, and that when Downey was being strangled, she was running a bath. So she's conveniently never, never here for any well, of these what's murders, interesting you know? is she has very specific and very exact times, dates, and things she was doing. Like Of doing very mundane things? Yeah. Right. And typically people that genuinely weren't at the scene of the crime they won't remember specifically what they were doing at what time oh that's about that time i was looking out the window yeah i remember that I, said I nobody specifically ever <laughs> was looking out the window when you murdered that girl i remember it yeah i, I very distinctly remember looking out the window right uh, <laughs> i mean jesus so on may 6th the jury found them guilty of all three murders or, found Brady guilty of all three murders and Henley guilty of the murders of Downey and Evans. The death penalty was abolished actually while they were being held in jail on remand, so before their trial. So the judge passed the the only sentence that the law allowed, which was life imprisonment. Brady was sentenced to three concurrent life sentences, and concurrent means running at the same time. Consecutive means back-to-back. And Henley was given two life sentences plus a concurrent seven-year term for harboring Brady and the knowledge that he had murdered Kilbride. In closing remarks, the judge described the murders as a truly horrible case and condemned the accused as two sadistic killers of the utmost depravity. He recommended that both Brady and Henley spend a very long time in prison before being considered for parole, but did not stipulate a tariff. So in, in the UK, they don't have life without parole. There's a life without parole for a certain amount of time, but I believe the max period of time you can spend in prison without being considered for parole is like 30 years. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean you'll get parole. That just means you have to have a parole hearing. Okay. So uh, the judge stated that Brady was wicked beyond belief and that he saw no reasonable, reasonable possibility of reform. He did not consider that the same was necessarily true of Henley, saying once she's removed from Brady's influence, she'll probably be reformed. And throughout the trial, Brady and Henley stuck rigidly to their strategy of lying. And Henley was later described as a quiet, controlled, impassive witness who lied remorselessly. And they later found, like the UK Independent later claimed that in her journal article, she said that Ian Brady was incredibly abusive and that he strangled her and he would drug her and that she felt that he was practicing his abuse of the children. He was practicing this on her. How convenient. So that's another interesting twist on this case, kind of similar to the toy box where she very likely participated, but was she a willing participant or was this something where she was abused and coerced into participating? And they recovered, just one last thing, they did recover all, all of the bodies except for Keith Bennett. And in 19, 
87, the police actually called off their search of the Saddleworth Moor. So they never have found Keith Bennett's remains in this moor. But they believe he is still there. So it's my understanding that at various times throughout this case and later um, before, because I believe he's still alive and she's dead, correct? He just died in 2017. Oh, okay. So he's recent. But yeah, she, so it's a very recent. Yeah, let me... She sorry, passed I'm away down to, She passed away pretty early. But what was interesting that I was going to say is that he sort of brokered these deals to get himself out at various times to go search the more for these other bodies. So he used it as a, con- I don't think he wanted yeah. them to know where the final body was. I think he knew where it was. I think he was using it as a tool to get himself out on various occasions of and prison. go visit the, the grave site, the crime scene and yeah. not tell anybody what he was doing. Yeah. And it's also my understanding that she um, was up for parole on, on various times and it was very, very um, strongly protested. But right. She ended up taking on a female lover at one point and thought oh, she that right? out and, and go marry this woman or be with this woman at some wow. point. So she actually died later than I thought. She didn't die until 2002. She died of bronchial pneumonia. She was only 60 when she died. So she was super young when she committed these murders. And um, what's his ass? Ian Brady, he died in 2017. And he was cremated and his ashes were disposed of at sea. But they were together and then apart and then together and apart and got back together in various Mm -hmm. stages. And um, it was just a very twisted case. between Super toxic relationship. Absolutely. And I honestly believe that the stuff that had happened either would not have happened if they were together or she would never have done anything like that if she had not had this man in her life. I think that's probably true. I think she probably did have maybe some violent tendencies and she may have been in rev- abusive relationships. But I don't think she probably would have committed these murders had she not met him. I think he certainly was the catalyst for this violent behavior. Yeah. But I do think she was involved. Now, I don't know if that was due to abuse and coercion or if she was a willing participant. But... I do think she was involved. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. This is the point in the podcast where we wrap it up and we say so long, farewell. Please rate, review, and subscribe. It is very, very important for us if you guys actually do that. I know the tendency is to just skip right by or fast forward through that section, but it's really important when you guys review and subscribe to our podcast because it helps us continue to provide the type of podcast that you guys want to enjoy and listen to. Darcy, what's our social media? We are at the BFD podcast on both uh, Twitter and Instagram. Give us a follow. We are posting pictures from the cases. Absolutely. And if you guys would like to comment, question, suggest, please do that. Um, our email is the BFD podcast at gmail.com. We love hearing from you guys. It shows us that you're interested and enacting, interested and interacting with us, which is what we love. And please join us again next week when we talk more about weird, wacky, and wild stuff. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe, keep it real, and always live your very best life. Bye. Bye, guys.